This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to the latest programme. I am Seb Lozier and this time we're joined by a Wimbledon finalist, a man with eight ATP Tour titles to his name, who's been as high as number three in the world. He's an art collector, a financier and known as one of the great thinkers on tour. I am talking about Canada's Milos Raonic. Over the course of this podcast, we talk about his major on-court memories, including his breakthrough year in 2011 and biggest year so far in 2016, his early life and journey into tennis and his interests away from the game. But with the tour set to resume in August, we started with his thoughts on exactly that. I'm excited about it. Uh, I think uh, this is the first time we're having a longer period of time off. You know, we get those about six weeks in the off season before we sort of come back to it and that's after having played for uh, almost 11 months. And, uh, you know, you're very grateful for that time. And uh, you really enjoy all six of those weeks. And probably by the time you get to the fifth week, uh, it feels like you could do another six weeks. But uh, considering this year, we had our time off. We only got to play a little bit at the beginning and then have this long hiatus now that uh, will be somewhere, I believe, in about 20 weeks by the time we get to tennis. It's going to be different. I think it's, uh, especially with uh, a lot of important tournaments right around the swing of things. You know, you get a big 500 in Washington. Then within the grasp of about seven weeks, you have uh, three Masters and two Grand Slams. So uh, a lot is on the line over a very short period of time. And I know everybody's going to be pushing to be playing their best very early on. It's going to be hard because... There's a big difference between 20 weeks of no matches compared to uh, six weeks of no matches. So I think uh, everybody's going to be eager to get started, happy to be back on tour. Obviously, life on tour is going to be quite different, but uh, it's something that we're doing consciously as the right decision to give ourselves the opportunity to be healthy, to be able to compete and to have tennis come back and to be able to uh, bring back, uh, obviously, you're going, we're going to be in different communities around the world, but uh, fans are not going to be in question for uh, quite a few of them. So it's about getting tennis back and having people be able to be home and uh, support their favorite players and, and follow, I believe, some great tournaments. Yeah, the practicalities of, of getting out there are going to be interesting, aren't they? For, for a guy like you, though, you mentioned the 20 weeks. You, you've had your... Your, your injury, I guess, woes, we'll call them, over the past few years. It, it must have been lovely for the body to have had that enforced break. But at the same time, is, is there sort of a double-edged sword of, you know, starting back up and the fear of, you know, just going from almost no competitive tennis to lots of competitive tennis? Yeah, I think it all goes about how, how you went about your time off. I think for me, I was thankful that at the beginning of the season, I was much healthier than I had been in a long time. I think towards the end of last year after Wimbledon, I think I only played about four matches competitively. So uh, to have a, a healthy swing at the start of the year, but also to go into this break healthy has been important because it allowed me, rather than seeing it as a break, to see it as a training block, to really 
do some catch up for a lot of the stop and start that I had been doing over the last three, four years and to really try to get ahead on things. So for me, it's actually been a, a busy time uh, in terms of training, which also has been good for me mentally because that kind of structure of having my trainings through the day and those kind of things, it, uh, it helped the weeks go by because it's, it's a familiarity I have. There's a lot of times where uh, I'll be isolated, quiet and doing my training and it's those uh, long days of two a days or three a days that uh, help you get uh, get through one week, then two weeks, and then all those weeks sort of start to mend together. So having those uh, training blocks has been uh, hopefully a blessing, hopefully something I can make the most of. But I think the hardest thing for me has been that after everything did get sort of shut down over this period of time is having been away from family. I haven't been able to see my uh, parents for a long time and those kind of things just because they're a little bit older they would have been at risk and me having been down in Indian Wells and LA before that getting there, I don't feel like it was the right choice. And then a lot of borders shutting down and then it not being a possibility at all, but uh, that time will come as well. And I'm sure we'll enjoy it that much more. You mentioned the training block. I'm interested to know how, what that looked like. What, what sort of stuff have you, have you been doing? Has it been a lot of fitness? Has it been a lot of tennis? What sort of balance did you strike? Yeah, I think it all depends on where you where you've been locked down. And I think what has been possible, what have been the government guidelines and so forth. There's been uh, at the beginning, it was mostly fitness because we knew how far tennis was going to be awake, uh, especially after uh, the French Open had moved their dates and Wimbledon was uh, pretty quick to pull the trigger and say, hey, there will be no Wimbledon this year, which I believe was the right choice. So that right away gave us a gap of saying, okay, this is going to be at least 12 weeks before I think the initial date released by the ATP was July 13th. So then we said, okay, what's going to be, how are we going to spread this out? And I think we really focused on fitness at the beginning. And uh, during the first block, the second block, it was still a um, big focus on fitness, but with some transition to tennis. And then I think now as we get closer to playing in August, it's going to be the tennis aspect is going to be picking up and taking priority more and more. And, you know, at first doing it with my team around me and then obviously trying to find players and see where players are going to be and meet up before to try to simulate as much match play as we can so that you don't go from uh, zero matches or zero uh, match uh, simulated points to two out of three sets right away for two weeks and then uh, right into a three out of five to try to let the body and the, the mental side of it get used to and into the rhythm of playing again. Because where have you been? Well, at first, uh, what happened was uh, as soon as Indian Wells was uh, called off, my first objective was I have to get to a West Coast because if flights do start getting stopped, uh, it's a lot easier on the West Coast to drive down to Florida to, to play in Miami than it would be to drive across the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that was my first thing. So at first I was in New York. Uh, then uh, I actually went down when Miami got postponed and spent time in Florida. Uh, there were certain parts of Florida that didn't have any really lockdown uh, restrictions or very, very lax lockdown restrictions. So when I was there between using an individual's private court or being in a community that had courts uh, with a tennis academy. I was able to go about my training as I would with uh, extra precautions, limited people in the gym and, you know, using the same hitting partners over and over again to not be seeing a variety of different people, even the people I was hitting with just to 
sort of uh, see the same few people and uh, know that hopefully they're taking care on their end of things just as I am on mine. And then at late, the last weeks I've been down in the Bahamas. Here it's been, uh, it was one of the first places that shut down the airport completely. So no kind of passengers were allowed in or out and it took for them a while to open up. And being here in a, a different community, it's the same kind of thing. You see the same few people over and over again that everybody's sort of taking care of things on their own end and you're able to go about things and train. Of all the tournaments to come back to um, as well, it must be nice to come back to Washington because, you know, I think on paper it's still your biggest win. Um, I think 2014 against fellow Canadian Vasek Pospisil must have some fond memories of Washington. I've always been able to put forth uh, a good level when I've gone there. Obviously, having that... uh, result of winning it uh, six years ago now was an incredible moment for me but uh, for me it's really been uh, depending on results at Wimbledon if I'm if I've been there in Wimbledon late it sometimes has been too quick to come back onto hard courts but uh, especially now after this longer period of time off I think it's the ideal prep having that kind of comfort there and looking forward to it a lot before uh, before we move over to, to New York to play two events in the same venue, it will be a nice way of sort of working things in and hopefully being able to play some good tennis early on. There's going to be a lot of tennis, isn't there? You mentioned at Washington, Cincy, US Open, Madrid, Rome, Roland Garros, in, in pretty short order. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of tennis, but it's a massive opportunity, I guess. How, how do you see it and how many of those can you realistically play in? Well, I think... A lot of players are going to be signed up for all of those and then making decisions to see how results go because I think there's going to be very few players that have a sense of where their game's at until they get to the first one to see how they're doing in matches, if they're winning matches or not. So I think, uh, is it possible to play all eight weeks pretty much going deep into tournaments, winning two, three matches? Probably not. I think uh, that's that's going to be tough on people, and I think that's going to be tough physically, especially especially we're talking about changing continents, traveling overseas, and changing surfaces. So I think uh, players are going to have to be selective if they are looking to do well, um, and if they have the possibility early on to do well, they're going to have to sort of uh, shave off some events. But I think... Uh, I think everybody's going to want to go out and try to play as much as possible because you have those, what will it be? If you play each week, you're putting up about seven and a half thousand points up for grabs within, uh, within eight weeks. And uh, I think uh, the standard of what a top 10 player or what the top is, it's going to be much lower because of the lack of events throughout the year. So I think uh, people are going to be trying to maximize that to try to make swings and make pushes so that they have a chance to play in the world tour finals and these kind of things, because it's going to be a lot in such a short period of time. I think it's not only going to be about the level of tennis that you can bring uh, physically, but also mentally to be able to maintain that intensity, to be able to recover in short periods of time and keep that hunger over that whole uh, swing of things and then and then there's also going to be tournaments after that and you can't all of a sudden blow yourself out for eight weeks and then forget that there's the rest of a season to play so there's there's going to be that kind of necessary self-management and self-awareness to be able to make uh, individually the best decisions possible i gather you've also been using the time to study players and the way they've tactically played against you i was wondering if you'd found anything that surprised you in all of that 
Yeah, you know, I, I watched certain matches, um, obviously with limitations of where my physical shape was with the injuries and so forth. There were some matches that necessarily didn't read true because I felt like I could have been in better preparation where I was just trying to get back after being in an injury. But there were some matches that uh, you could really pinpoint things after, you know, if I was healthy two weeks where you sort of see where my game started coming together a little bit the second week and so forth. And just trying to see little things like uh, where certain players try to pick off on uh, their service selections, what they're sort of trying to do, how they're trying to create points. Um, obviously, everybody does it differently, where they might be leaning towards, because when I'm playing and I'm looking up at my toss, I'm not seeing which way a player might be leaning. But if I'm seeing it, you know, from an eagle point of view on TV, I can sort of look at a few things and see where guys lean. So yeah, there's been things I've noticed. There's been things that I feel I could do better. There's been moments where I feel like I might be necessarily out of position where if I was a little bit more disciplined, I could have been in a better position or I could have done a better shot selection with that same kind of situation. And I've tried to, as much as I can, incorporate that with the practice partners that I've had to try to simulate those kind of things. So that when they, I am put in those situations in matches, that either I can pick up on them earlier and make an adjustment, or that naturally, just by having those repetitions, that change can sort of take place on its own because it's something that I've made a conscious effort about in practice. You also fe- featured recently on an all-Canadian version of Tennis United, this new production w- with your, I guess, your, your good friends, Bethany Matek-Sands and Vashik Pospisil. How, how was that? I thought that was a lot of fun. I think, uh, you know, uh, first of all, the Canadians, we haven't seen each other in a long time. I believe that that it's going to be pretty much since Australia because you had, I played the North American swing through February. They played, uh, a few of them played the European swing. So it's been a, a much longer time rather than just this break that we haven't seen each other. But then it's also a nice way to, uh, put us all together on the ATP and WTA sides. Sometimes where, even though we're at the same tournaments, everybody's going about their own schedule, preparing for their own matches, aware of their own uh, goals that they're trying to achieve that week. You sort of can pass by without the possibility of really just sitting down and having a light conversation. And to have that, that was a lot of fun. Good to see everybody doing well. And, you know, I'm sure we'll all be happy to see each other in a few weeks time. I want to pick up in a little while about some of the similarities that some of you Canadians uh, have um, amongst yourselves. But I wanted to also ask you about what this enforced timeout has allowed you to do outside of tennis as well, because I know you, you know, you have your passions outside of tennis. We normally talk about these things right at the end of the interview, but I thought, well, you know, we don't really know Milos that well. So let's talk about these things almost straight away. You're you're big into art. You're, You're big into finance. Talk to me about art first. I mean, wh- where did that come from? Over the years, I've spent, especially going to the U.S. Open for a big chunk of time, spending time in New York, somewhere I've grown to enjoy and spend more and more time. And a lot of my close uh, friends have been building careers in that world. And I think that's where my first exposure has been to it. And then it sort of became this uh, sort of ritual of, being at tournaments in great cities all around the world from australia to new york through paris through vienna all these great cities and having a lot of time and sort of before you could sort of 
get caught up in a Netflix show or something like this to really pass time between practices, between matches, on days off and so forth, where a conscious effort was made before it really became a passion to, okay, you know what, I'm aware of what's going on in the city. I asked my friends for some advice, what would be great to see at this period in this city, actually sometimes even plan it ahead of time. Uh, so I knew exactly what I wanted to make time for. And that's how it grew into a passion. It's the, the awareness grew, the, uh, spending the time on it and getting around the cities. And just it became a thing that uh, was a nice way to spend days off without really tiring myself out and learning a lot to something that I really enjoy. That now it's not only that I get to a city and then I'm asking, hey, what would be good? I have a day off. It's like, I plan it in advance. It's like, okay, on my day off, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And different things like that. Obviously, the, the possibilities of seeing any great shows or anything has not been possible at this moment. But uh, just like last night, I think the, the spring auctions uh, for Sotheby's were all online. And to be able to follow that, we followed that, uh, me and a f uh, friends, uh, for about four hours last night just to see sort of where the market was and how things were moving nowadays with, uh, with different economic implications around the world. And also, and it didn't seem to change at all. I think it was one of their more positive uh, showing. So little things like that, that I've tried to do. And then away from that, been cooking a lot more, uh, just first it was out of necessity because you don't really want somebody always coming over, dropping off food and you don't have the freedom to, to get to restaurants. And then it sort of became like, hey, you know, I feel better doing this. It's a nice way. You can only train so many hours a day. You can only sit on a couch after training so many hours a day and let time pass by. It's like, okay, this is, this is a nice positive uh, habit to create, uh, to, to spend some time with the people around me and uh, rather than sort of everybody maybe hiding off in their own rooms and that kind of thing and doing their own things. It brings us all together. And then little things like I've had the opportunity, not only because of my schedule being more open, but also with my friends, uh, they're not doing their day-to-day -day work or traveling for work where we're all in different time zones that it's not possible necessarily to catch up or with family. Everybody's sort of been running on the same schedule. So it's been a lot easier in some ways to catch up while being far away. That has done a, a, a lot for me because... Uh, I value the people around me and I'm grateful for them. It's nice to be able to strengthen those kind of relationships and to have that time and have that conscious awareness of that. I'm not completely into my own thing right now. They're not completely sunken into theirs that you can spend some time together. At first, when I was in New York, we actually all isolated together for a while. And then when I left, we've all kept in touch rigorously. Yeah, it's been lovely to just be able to breathe in a way and just sort of relax into things a little bit. Two more quick questions on the art, just quick fire questions. Favorite artist? Rothko. Favorite museum? Uh, just because of the placement, the Picasso Museum in uh, Antibes. And the first piece you bought? Um, a Rashid Johnson painting. I believe it's probably about six, seven years ago now. Um, I remember you telling me actually a few years ago in Monte Carlo that if you weren't a tennis player, you'd probably work in finance. Is, is that still true? Yeah, I, I have a complete intention of after tennis going and trying to, trying to get my MBA. Both my parents are engineers. 
numbers have always been something that I've excelled at uh, naturally, but also through through their education and also the importance they put on it for myself, my brother, and my sister growing up. So uh, I don't know if I'd go into the, they advised me not to go into engineering, but uh, I think I would go into finance and try to see if I could make something of myself there. I wanted to ask you about your, your parents and your early life, in fact. So it's a perfect segue. Um, you're another Canadian immigrant sporting success story. There seem to be so many, even just in tennis. You know, we've got, you know, more recently than you, Felix Ogialiasim, Denis Shapovalov, Bianca Andreescu, even Vasek Pospisil, I guess, judging from Vasek's name. Um, what is it there? Is it that Canada allures people in or is it the kind of people who are choosing to go to Canada? Well, I think... If you are an immigrant, for me, it was in 1994, we moved. Obviously, there was the outbreak of war in former Yugoslavia. So we we moved out of uh, almost a necessity and that there was a brighter horizon with what was going on in that, in that part of the world. And uh, I think when you come somewhere looking to improve upon your life, I think there's a certain hunger that comes with that. And I think uh, Canada gives possibilities to to families, to kids, to adults, to everybody, probably like no other place. I think they're incredibly welcoming. I think uh, they allow people very openly to practice their culture, to practice their religion. You have certain parts of Toronto alone where you have Greek town, you have all these different pockets of people that can bask in their own heritage, but also be a part of the greater Canadian culture as well. So I think all those kind of things come together where my parents, alongside their family and with us as kids, can move to Canada, try to really create themselves as part of the community, use their education that they learned back in uh, Montenegro, and try to work hard and create an opportunity for themselves, but also incorporate us into the school system, into sports, into uh, different things around the community, but also have the freedom of choosing the way they want to educate us, the way they want to have an impact on us at home. And I think Canada is incredibly open and warm about that. And I think that's why you have the Canadians that are succeeding. You have incredibly different stories and from different parts of Canada as well. You have Vasek, who's from the West Coast, you have myself and Dennis from uh, just the outskirts of Toronto, Felix, uh, and also Bianca's also from the outskirts of Toronto. I think she's actually probably more close to the center of Toronto than me and uh, Dennis are. Then you have Felix and Jeannie from Montreal. So you have successes in different parts of the country, a country that is very sparsely populated considering the size and then to have all these players be able to come together and have different generations succeeding because you see it always comes in patches me and Mashik we grew up together then you had uh genie follow but then you have bianca uh, felix and dennis all part of the same generation as well i think you have to have it amongst each other that you push each other that you have that kind of thing and you go forth and different kinds of heritage from their backgrounds and I don't think there was ever a single moment where a single one of us would have felt like we were oppressed or anything because of that, like that that was held against us. It was always celebrated. And I think that's one of the beauties of Canada. From what you know of what is Montenegro now, um, do you ever wonder what your life 
would have been like? How how different your course would have been? You know, it's it's hard to say, um, and it's it's different because you have my brother and sister who are both considerably older than I am. So for them, moving to Canada as teenagers was a lot more difficult than for me, who was three years old. Yeah. For me, I was a happy go with anything that was around as long as I could have my time to run around and probably cause havoc on people. Whereas for them, it was a lot difficult. They had their relationships, their friendships back home. For I know, so I know for the two of them, it was actually a very conscious and important effort that when they did have their first opportunity, they wanted to move back because they had uh, a lot of their friends there. They were also picking up English at a much later stage in life where for me, my English outperformed my uh, Serbian very quickly on. And I actually improved my Montenegrin Serbian over the last few years when I've been exposed to more players on it on tour because my parents always speak it to me, but that's still a few times a day. But then having different people on my team from former Yugoslavia and also all these former Yugoslavian tennis players on tour where constantly conversing in it mm. and you're always picking up on things and you're listening to it much more it helped me improve on it so I think for them there was always this dream and familiarity to go back for me it's it's always been you know Canada has been great to me great to my family great to my parents but then given me an opportunity to do things I dreamt about and I think uh, for all those kind of things it's been uh, it's been great but I don't know what life would have been like. I don't know if tennis would have been a possibility. I don't know if tennis would have uh, been a successful venture, would have been another sport. Who knows how it would have been, but I know that uh, the possibilities that happened for me are a big thanks to Canada being structured the way it is and also very key, important people in my life uh, that have guided me and tried to raise me right. I remember talking to Goran Ivanisevic actually when he was working with you way back and he said he felt that he kind of got you in terms of the mentality the you know from where you're where you're from I was wondering do you still feel a tie do you, do you feel a tie increasingly or you know to, to that area no I do and a lot of the people that have been closest to me and that I've garnered the best relationships on tour have been from back there obviously at first it was a lot easier because they haven't what weren't many Canadians on tour. So you're going to gravitate to familiarity. And that was a big part of familiarity for me, breaking through on tour and people that were also more open to me in that sense. So that helped. And then also being surrounded with those people on my team was a big part of it. And at the end of the day, yes, we moved to Canada, but my parents, I believe were probably in their forties when we moved. So the way they're going to raise a kid isn't going to be the standard Canadian way. They're going to raise you as best as they can from what they know from their history, their own, their own 40 years of experience. So that, that part didn't come far from home at all. And I think that's why Goran was able to understand me because he, those kind of mentalities, they're pretty tight knit and it's uh, it takes a certain pe- uh, person uh, to successfully grow up under a communist regime preceding uh, preceding those the wars through uh, through the early 90s and i think uh, i think you can see that and i think that kind of mentality you can see amongst all the tennis players that are successful from that region of the world and there are many of us lots of tennis players are born into tennis you know their parents are 
you know, players or coaches or, you know, either one of them or both. You've already said yours were, were both engineers. So clearly that wasn't the same for you. What, what kind of upbringing did you have and how did you find tennis? I found tennis by both my parents being employed and uh, both of them working through spring break. And what are you going to do with an eight-year-old uh, <laughs> that uh, you can't leave him home alone? And uh, you can only ask your teenagers so much to take care of him throughout a week. So uh, I was signed up for tennis. I think uh, my, both my parents, it was something that was a sport that was revered in former Yugoslavia. I think you had success in basketball in the 80s, but also you had uh, all these tennis players, Fernjovic, uh, Nikola Pilic, all these tennis players that gave a glamour to tennis and that as a person from that part of the world, you can succeed. So I'm sure it was probably on TV all that time. So I think there was a familiarity. It's like, okay, there's a tennis camp close to our apartment. Let's sign up Milos for that. And I think that was my first exposure to it. Then I didn't play tennis for a year after that because we had moved to another uh, part of the outskirts of Toronto. But uh, my father, after seeing how much I enjoyed it and how much interest I had in it, he made a conscious effort to try to find uh, a consistent program for me because I'd never played any other kind of organized sports. For me, sports always growing up was you go out in front of, in front of the, the apartment complex or in front of your house in that community where you are and a lot of times it ends up being street hockey with the tennis ball and hockey sticks and you just pull out the nets into the middle of the street. You play until the car comes off, you push the nets to the side, let the car pass, pull them back out and you keep playing. And most of the time it was on rollerblades. So that was the only kind of organized sport I had before my father signed me up. And I was put in this program that uh, at that moment I was young for, but also I hadn't played enough tennis to be a part of. And for the first six months, most of it was, uh, one hour less than a week, uh, a semi-private with another kid uh, because that was what my parents could afford at that time. And the rest was my me going on a ball machine early in the mornings and late at night because court fees during the winter in Canada can be quite strenuous financially. And uh, my father just picking up tennis balls and uh, me hitting. And the crazy thing is to this day, I don't think my parents have ever played tennis. Really? Yeah, they, they'll like... They'll have their own thoughts. They'll take my nephew to tennis, all this kind of stuff. They'll, they'll be all par for it and they love it. But I have not seen, even when my father would pick up tennis, well, I have not seen him hold a tennis racket, nor my mother. That's amazing. Um, growing up, there were tennis idols. I, I read that yours was Pete Sampras. Why was that? Um, growing up for me, uh, I just, well, he was the player that was winning the most. So that tends to make people like someone yeah. uh, you know uh, success uh, draws attention and he was winning the most and his demeanor the way he went on about things it was a very uh, simple focused and garnered attention to his tennis it was what could he do and then also for me my coach at that time also mentioned like hey watch Pete Sampras serve it made me very aware of the importance of it very early on that I wanted to pay attention to it. That a lot of the time when there wasn't anybody to play tennis with, I was completely fine taking in basketballs and serving for an hour. And thankfully I did that because it's done great things for me. And it's something I still continue to do because I understand the importance of it. But uh, if I didn't learn that early on, who knows if there would even be a professional tennis career. Big move happened for you in 2007, I believe. You, you went to Montreal to the new what was then the new National Tennis Centre. What, what was that like for a 16-year-old for a to sort of 
you know, go there all by yourself? It was tough, but it was necessary at that point. For me, uh, one thing I did focus on early on in, uh, in uh, my education with my father being a, a university professor back when we lived in Montenegro, both my parents being well educated. One thing when I really started to take the tennis thing seriously, it was never to be at the expense of my education. So a big part for me that was uh, paid attention to is I wanted to finish high school as quickly as possible to give myself as much time as possible before I turn 18 and have to make that decision about going to university or going to pro. So I actually finished high school in about a year and a half rather than the regular four years. I worked through the summer. I worked in the evenings after I would go to regular school during the day after practice. Then I would continue in doing correspondence classes. And that way I bought myself two, two and a half years of time to see like, okay, where's my tennis really at? What can I make of it? And just really focus on it because you, you hear about a lot of kids uh, that are at academies are really focused on tennis and then sort of school fits in the schedule. And my parents, understanding the importance of education and how important it was for them and their life, didn't see that working out for me, which I'm very thankful for. And uh, at that point, I had this free time and I wanted to see where could I be as a tennis player before I make that decision of going to school or pro. So there was no sacrifice or no compromise that was too big. It was all about doing what was the best decision to see where my game could be at. I was thankful they opened that center. They brought in coaches from uh, from France at that time and other parts of the world that really helped me and made me understand what would be necessary to succeed. And knowing that they're coming from successful program, it buys you a lot of conviction, you know? It makes those early morning runs and those workouts that aren't pleasant a little bit more fun because you're, you're buying into the system. You're buying into like, hey, this has worked for other players that you see on TV, that you see in the positions where you want to be. And I think that was important for me. And then later on, moving on to another system. And I made many moves since then without any hesitation because I always ask myself, is this the best possible decision for my tennis? And that, that, that I've always tried to sort of be able to answer yes to that so I could continue and get the most out of my game. I do want to ask you about two huge years for you, 2011 and 2016. Um, 2011 was a breakthrough in many ways, wasn't it? With And the Australian Open on paper just looks such a huge breakthrough to climb what, whatever it was, 120 ranking places. Talk to me about that. Yeah, for me, there was a lot of up and downs in, uh, in 2011 as well. But I remember I was, I think, the second round or the last round qualies against Andre Martin. I can't remember which court at Melbourne Park. I was down a set and a break. So things could have been very different for me in that year. I made a comeback there, made it through, uh, beat two seeds, made it to fourth round. And I think that was the first thing that propelled me into, uh, into the top 100, which for me was a great, it was a big part of an overall career objective that I had. But then you get quickly whisked away, travel uh, across Australia, get an opportunity to play in Johannesburg, which isn't around anymore, go there, qualify, and I believe I lost either in the second round or the quarters. Then after having a good start to the year, uh, the tournament director, Bill Rapp, was kind enough in San Jose to give me a wild card. So go from Johannesburg to fly to, I believe, flew next week, back-to-back weeks, flew to Dubai to fly to San Francisco to play in San Jose, uh, managed to get a win there, to win my first title, which is something that would have been a career objective as well. So for that to happen, then you get whisked away, overnight flight, 
uh, I think you have to do a connecting to get from San Jose to Memphis, play the same guy in the first round that I played in the finals of San Jose, play him in the first round of, uh, of Memphis, squeeze my way through that, make a finals week that week. Uh, just because you're ri- uh, riding on cloud nine and you, get, you, get, you learn what this thing is, a special exempt, you're like, hey, why not play more tournaments? So take a special exempt into Acapulco and then you realize when you get there, oh, this is on clay. This is a completely different thing. I don't know, maybe I'm not ready for this. Then I had to pull out of that event. We had an incredible Davis Cup win there against Mexico. Uh, but then to go to Indian Wells, Miami, then I sort of started to hit a little bit of a wall of fatigue uh, from not only venturing into this new level of tennis that I hadn't been a part of. I was all of a sudden ranked, I believe, in the 30s, maybe in the top 30 at that point from starting the year 150. By the time, you know, being seated when you get to uh, Indian Wells was an incredible difference of atmosphere around me. And then uh, all that happens, go on clay, do better on clay than you probably could have ever thought you would do. Struggle on grass, which you thought you'd probably be better at, and actually end up slipping. And I believe it was the first round uh, against uh, Gilles Muller, and that 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 ends up pushing you to have to have hip surgery. So all of a sudden, you're riding this high. You're in the top thirty a lot quicker than you thought. Who knows? Who knows what could have been done to make the most of that year? Getting back on hard courts, having that excitement, and then all of a sudden, you're not playing any tennis for a while. Uh, you're being told you're out 12 to 16 weeks. All of a sudden, you're okay. I'm going to come back in the fall. Is there? Will I be? I'm out for 12 to 16, but do I have time to prepare and get ready and make the most of those last few weeks, or are we just calling this till the end of the year to make sure we recover? Right. Thankfully, I had a quick recovery. Was able to win some matches and get back into the rhythm of playing tennis uh, before the season ended. And then you know you go through this world when you run from one thing to the next. For at first, it's from one tournament to the next. Then it's you know, from after tournaments, from one rehab to the next, to the next, you never have a chance to think about it twice. And you get to the off season and all of a sudden, all you're obsessed about is being better for the next year. And those, those moments, I don't know when I'll truly get to reflect on them. It's probably going to be after I'm done playing tennis, because right now it's always, you would go to the next thing, but that year uh, changed my life in, in the most drastic way over 12 months than any other has to this day. What about 2016 as well? Because, I mean, you mentioned it yourself. Your game is kind of made for grass. Um, so you think grass, you think Queens, you think Wimbledon. 2016 was a great year, but also you must look back on it thinking what what might have been to lose both those finals to the same guy who you must have been sick of seeing Andy Murray by the end of that year. I think he beat you seven times in the year. I mean, yeah. but... but yeah, um, thank you for reminding <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, but what, what, I mean, what... How special is Wimbledon to you? And um, especially, you know, that year as well, reaching the final. Yeah, everything for that year. I remember I finished 2015 off with an injury. I think I stopped the season after Shanghai, which at that point, there was a part of me, the way I was feeling physically, because I had surgery earlier in the year uh, before the grass court swing. There was a part of me that was saying, even after US Open, knowing like, hey, who knows? if I'll be able to get through the rest of the season. And then you go into the year, I think I was ranked 16 at that point with a lot of my points to defend at the beginning of the year. So you don't know how long this downturn is going to be because uh, that's where you did well at the beginning. And then all of a sudden, right away, it kicked off for me winning in Brisbane. That took a lot off me, making the semis in Australia. Um, 
against Andy, uh, losing to him there, but then facing some injuries at that point as well, missing a few a few weeks of tournaments you were hoping to play to really consider uh, continue on this momentum of feeling good. Going to Indian Wells, I believe having to also defend some points there, making a final there, that took also a lot of pressure. So there was a lot of things that happened that couldn't have happened and the story again would have been very different, but they happened for me. And then we got to the grass court swing and uh, I was working with Carlos Moya at that time and I, there was, we, he was helping me a lot with Ricardo as well. And a big part of it was going to be, okay, what can we do? Like I've definitely taken this step forward in my tennis. What can I do to take another step forward to really make a difference, to make the difference between being a semifinalist at a Grand Slam to going further on? And, and also there was a bunch of weeks before uh, you get to Wimbledon where Carlos was going to join me and I was there. It's like, how do you maximize those weeks to be the best player possible come Wimbledon? And I was thankful enough that John McEnroe was willing to join us and really help me out. And he took a lot of time out of his schedule because you know, I'm sure he normally would like to go back home after commentating on the French Open. Uh, I remember after that final, he took a train and we started that Monday. We had a week before Queens to see, okay, what can we really make happen in this time? And then, and then it, it, you get into another one of these whirlwinds. You play five matches. You play well. You, I had a tough draw there. I had the first round. You know, I, I made the most. It could have also gone again. I think it was a tight four, three sets. All of a sudden, that changes around. Make the final that week. Up a set and a break. Doesn't go the way you wanted, but you sort of feel like you're coming on to something. And... Uh, then you're focused on, okay, I want to keep things going well for Wimbledon, but uh, also need to recover. And uh, you do that. I remember fourth round Wimbledon down two sets to love against Goffin. Obviously, the script could be very different. I managed to come back in that one. And then, you know, things start falling into place. And uh, playing Roger again, which was two years before that, the first time I had made a semis of a Grand Slam. At Wimbledon in 2014 so I always enjoyed playing there but then playing Roger in a semis uh, after I think it, it was like 4-4-4 four, four, and four the first time we played there two years earlier so it wasn't much of a match but then managing to find a way through that one and then being in a final uh, feeling you can't replicate playing on Sunday at Wimbledon on that court it's not the loudest of courts but it is the most for me personally the most emotional of courts we're walking out onto and things not going the way and, you know, maybe feeling somewhat not the best taste of that match. But, you know, Andy was playing incredible. He went on. I think he had an incredible, I think he lost three or four matches towards the end of the year, finished number one. Uh, and then a lot of good things happened for me after that. A lot of tough moments as well because injuries were prevalent, but nothing serious that it kept me away long enough where I lose my momentum completely. But... I was able to go into the World Tour Finals, uh, I believe ranked fourth or fifth, but then end up finishing that uh, rank three. And to finish the year number three, uh, it would have, you know, if somebody offered me at the, that at the beginning of the season, who knows what I would have signed away for that. So to have that and to follow through on that meant a lot to me. I've just got one final question, if you will. Um, just really about the future. You, you mentioned you got to number three. You've worked with all these coaches. You're now with Mario Tudor. Um, what sort of targets are you setting yourself? Because I know you're, you're, you like setting targets. Yeah, for me, uh, obviously, the first one being the process. Because 
losing a lot of time and yeah it's been three years but it hasn't been three consistent years that i've gone in to compete it's about getting to back into the process of things of consistency day after day training and making progress day after day you can't just skip 10 steps and hope to be back to where you were or even further along i think nowadays i'm a much better tennis player than i used to be but uh, there's a lot of things you can't uh, you can't polish off at home if you're not away playing tournaments and those kind of things, the consistency of playing match after match, week after week, getting into that rhythm, having that confidence. You know, when you, you're away for a while and you play five matches in a row, mentally it's a lot more tiring than if you're doing it week after week, even though it's the same thing, but eventually you get into a rhythm of things. It's something, like anything that you train, it becomes easier and easier. So I think that's a first step for me, the health and the possibility to play consistent matches. And I think after that, with the work I'm doing and the work I've done over the years, the results will come, but I, I got to give myself the freedom and the possibility to go on court, compete, give it my all and see where my tennis takes me. My thanks to Milos Raonic. Fascinating chat. And for more like that, check out the ATP Tennis Radio podcast back catalogue where you'll find, among others, recent chats with Dominic Team, Marin Cilic and Juan Carlos Ferrero. Coming up next week, we'll have another giant server, South African Kevin Anderson. We'll talk with Kevin about all sorts. Get in touch on Twitter at ATP Tennis Radio if you have any burning questions and we'll be sure to ask him and we'll even give you a name check. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. This has been the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. If you like this podcast, Please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.